Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, Episode 18, Trial of the Take, Part 2. Uh, this week we're talking about Critical Role, Episode 19, Trial of the Take, Part 2, uh, starring Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Towson Jaffe as Percy, Sam Regal as Scanlan, Felicia Day as Lyra, Mary Elizabeth McGlynn as Zara, Matthew Mercer as, as always as the DM, and in the second half, Travis Willingham as Grog. Uh, he is not here for the first half, but he is here after the break. Yep. Previously, Introduce yourself. Oh, wait. Yeah, that's right. I should do that. <laughs> I am the executive producer. Thank you for reminding me. I'm the executive no producer here at Financial Films, John, and with uh, at John A. Bates on Twitter. And with me today is Jack. Hey, everybody. I'm Jack. I'm at AltF4Gamers on Twitter. And Jeremy. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I am JThomas411Mania on Twitter. And, and we this three. is Critical Thinking. I said that already. <laughs> We three are apparently the face of the company, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's Okay. Fair. It's, it's weird. Uh, but anyways. So uh, does that mean more like a seraphim? One of those like multi-faced no, it means no, I mean, it means that we are all equally John Cena. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say we're, we, we, we're the different arms of a hydra. But. Uh, there you go. Anyways. What kind of Hydra, Hydra has multiple arms? I thought it was a heads thing. Heads, heads, whatever. I mean, they use their heads like arms. So I was it's... thinking, so I, I said, I was thinking heads, and, but I've been reading Secret Empire, so I thought arms. Hail Hydra. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Hey, we've already tangented, and we haven't even started the introduction yet. It works on multiple geek levels, because this is where it's powerful. And and this is now you hear the sounds of me shanking Jack for saying Hail Hydra, (laughs) because death to all Hydras. Um, Anyways. Hail Hydra. Shank, shank. (laughs) Cut off one head. Two more shall take its place. That's my desperate attempt at being Hugo Weaving. (laughs) (laughs) Cut off one head, two more tickets, please. Good. More heads for me to punch. Um, (laughs) I mean, I know people who have tried to kill a Hydra in D&D that way. (laughs) That was a fun TPK. Punch the Hydra. If you got a high enough level monk, you can snap any number of Hydra heads, okay? No, no, yes. It's just they kept attacking the heads and and cutting them off, and it kept getting more and more and more. Right, yeah. right. As, as Hydras do. It's the what, what, you, what you should do is just beat it to death with subdual damage and then yeah. sink it in a pool of acid. Punch it so that it, you don't take the heads off. Right. It's, it's like bludgeoning damage doesn't remove heads, so you just keep punching it. Right. It's like, don't attack an ooze with a slashing weapon. Just don't. I mean, if you smash a head enough times with a mace, it is pulped enough that two more heads can grow out. That's how I rule it. (laughs) That's why you do body blows, and you just have, like, an army of monks. (laughs) So what you're saying is you just have, like, a monk's Dempsey rolling him? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Just, like, 50 monks. Right, speed, speed bag of Hydra, you know? It's a thing. It's a thing. <laughs> so, anyways, Critical Role. <laughs> Previously on Critical Role, our party of adventurers, Vox Machina, had broken a few rules in the city of Vasselheim and, and had infracted upon a contract for a guild of creature hunters known as the Slayer's Take. Uh, the group told Vox Machina that either they could, go, they could be arrested for this and go to put on, put on trial for breaking the law, or they could join the guild. And as such, be included in the written contract and everything would be fine. 
So they decided to go that route. They inquired with the Huntmaster, and she formed them, said that they could join after they uh, went through a trial of completing a contract. Uh, she hand-chose and divided the party into two separate smaller groups. The first being uh, the one that we are currently following, uh, Scanlan, Percy, Vex, and Grog, and along with two other adventurers, Zara, who is a uh, prospective member of the Slayer's Take, and Lyra, who is a member of the Slayer's Take and is the one assigned to their group. Um... They had some shenanigans uh, in the previous episode where they went around town trying to... Uh, they, were, they were assigned... Uh, they were assigned um, a adult white dragon to fight, which was voted on by the chat, by the way, uh, which just tells you never trust chat. Um, but, uh, uh, and uh, they, they sort of, you know, spent time around town trying to find information, gathering information about this adult white dragon, and eventually uh, went up uh, Glasswalk Road north of the city to, through the Vesper Timberlands uh, on some, on some uh, information that they had received. Um, as they traveled northward, they, you know, they 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 uh, found signs that a dragon had been there. And when they, as they slept after their long day of traveling, they were attacked by some orcs and an ogreish creature and a warg. Um, the party killed the uh, them all rather quickly, uh, and then continued on. Uh, after interrogating one of the orcs, they continued on northwest uh, into the forest that they had come uh, into the forest <clears throat> and managed to come upon what looked to be a perpetual blizzard that was blowing around the mountain range. And the dragon was sighted once again, taking its rest in the northern part of the mountain. They pushed on through the forest, managed to avoid the, uh, the few more dangerous situations, uh, thanks to their ranger guiding them through her favorite terrain, eventually coming up to the base of the mountain. Uh, they looked above and saw what looked like the entrance to a cavern where at least the dragon seems to fly in and out of. It's a ways of the mountain, and there's a smaller cavern towards the base of the mountain. They went to inquire about what was in there, at which point, out of nowhere, a giant rock made of solid ice and stone was flung out of the forest, slamming into Vex, knocking her onto her ass, and doing a decent amount of physical damage. 30 points of physical damage to the ranger, at which point the two two frost giants, one coming out of the cavern and another coming uh, coming through the woods, approached the party. And that was where they ended up last time, and the tour began this time, with Vex mm-hmm. picking herself up off the ground and another fight beginning with rolling initiative. Yep. Uh, although the first thing that happens is Grog, played uh, here by Laura Bailey, uh, attempts to reason with the uh, the, um, the frost giants using his giant ish. Uh, he you know makes this big wild claim and then rolls a charisma check and gets a natural one. And here's my first talking point of the day. Uh, okay, I figured this was going to be one. Bargaining in games. Um, so, uh, the, sort of what, what happened, what we see here in the episode, not necessarily narratively, but in the episode, and this happens a lot throughout the run of critical role is, uh, people, players will attempt to bargain with the rules, uh, and with the GM, uh, trying to find whatever grasp, uh, grasping piece of mechanical advantage they possibly can, um, for the sake of trying to get a better role. Uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing by itself, but um, how do you guys feel about, in, in this particular instance, Laura, Laura, after rolling one, goes, oh, but, wait, doesn't he get advantage for it being giants and being in a snowy mountain? Which was no. So, uh, so how do you guys feel about players bargaining where they have no 
dance to bargain from. My thing on it, anybody can ask once in a situation. They say, well, can I do this? Uh, No, you can't. Or yes, you can. If they keep trying to push it at that point, that's where it would, that that's where it's fine to try and and because we're working with it, with the indie, you're working within a rule set that doesn't always necessarily quantify thing every situation. Well, they can't. It can't. Um. So it's total. I feel like it's totally fine to ask. You know, well, can I get advantage on this for pretty much any possible situation? Or you know, can I get a, a higher difficult, lower difficulty for this? Or you know, can this be considered cover or whatever the case may be? Even if there's not much chance of it happening, it doesn't hurt to ask. When it goes beyond that, that gets to the point where you're arguing with the DM and that starts to cross a few lines, but I don't mind generally if somebody just asks, you know, like if had this situation come up, well, since this is what's going on, can I have advantage on the roll? No, but good thought. No, but nice try. Yeah. Good effort. I'm fairly similar on that. Um, I try and encourage players in my games to ask as many questions as possible because when people feel free to ask questions, that's going to generally at least partially cut down on the level of miscommunication that happens between storyteller and players. Um, you know, if if the the game is proceeding in a way that the players feel like they can't ask questions, you might describe something poorly or think you've communicated your idea and you haven't, and you have no way of then knowing and that can bog down the game or cause confusion or, Mm -hmm. or shift the narrative off into directions that you didn't intend it or desire for it to go. Um, So yeah, questions are perfectly fine. Now um, I tend to fall pretty heavily on the side of questions are good, but as soon as the DM makes a ruling, that's generally the end of the conversation because, because Debates on rules and things bog down a narrative. It's like unnecessary exposition in a screenplay. It just slows everything down for the sake of information without actually pushing the story forward. And that's mm-hmm. that's that, that's that's one of the fundamental aspects of a story in my mind. A story is a thing that moves. A story is a thing that has inertia, and you need to keep it rolling. It's going to do that by itself a little bit, but without continuous input – the story can and frequently will bog down and come to a halt and then everybody's stuck. Yeah. And you want to be able to, you want to, you want to empower your players to be able to take chances um, and, and try to think because those kinds of questions can ultimately, sure. They might be, be something that's a purely mechanical thing like, like, like this, but allowing them to ask those questions at that point, well, you never know what might come up with a gr- with a really good narrative moment or allow them to think creatively, think outside the box, and do things like taking a Final Show Films example, um, uh, uh, using a whip as a, a, a – in a way to sort of um, uh, leverage a Warforged back against a wall or – 
things like that, those kinds of things that you wouldn't think to do, if you tell people, you know, if you try to shut people down from asking those kinds of mechanical things, they're going to be less likely to take those chances that can ultimately lead to really great story moments. And I completely agree with you guys. I, I, I sounded a little confrontational at the beginning of the question because that's the job of the host, but um, yeah, no. I, I, I completely agree with, with, you know, ask question and letting people ask questions. I tend to let it go a little bit for, I personally tend to let it go a little bit further than asking the first question because there are times where, you know, GMs, as much as they are the GM, they're also people and mm-hmm. we forget yes. things and not all of us have an, not all of us have a perfect memory and, and have completely memorized all the books ever. Uh, oh yeah. And, and so there are definitely going to be parts where I make a ruling and maybe that ruling isn't correct. Maybe, maybe there's information that I've forgotten or that I've missed that would change that if I knew it would change that ruling. Um, and so I tend to allow a little bit more discussion. I don't, I never, I don't, I don't, I don't like to call it arguing. I like to call it discussing because mm-hmm. it, there's no arguing implies that there's a, uh, uh, that there's, uh, uh, intent behind it. And I don't I like, like, like that there's sort of more aggravated intent yes. behind it. And, and I, I like to think of it more as a friendly discussion, but they're deep to a point though, like, after when I when I've made a ruling and you've provided me the information that might change that decision and I say no I understand that but this is but this is still my ruling once I've acknowledged the additional information and then mm-hmm. after that you continue to try to fight it or gripe about it or complain about it that is when I start getting frustrated um, because it's yeah. Like, yeah, we know I've acknowledged that that's how it normally works. That's not how it's working in this particular instance for reasons that I have done, that I have deigned as the GM that settles it. Like yes. that should be the, that should be the period and continue on. Um, and I also find, I also find like from a, from a production standpoint, I find that having those discussions is, is worthwhile, even if it slightly interferes with the flow of the game, because there are people listening that may have never played Dungeons and Dragons and might not know why there's this objection to whatever the ruling is or why this ruling was made that way in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I find that even, even experienced players can get some sort of educational value out of those discussions. And it makes the game more fun when we all know why things are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then I feel like those are two. Uh, yeah. But, I fully agree with you. If it, it, it happens to me all the time, if I'm wrong on a ruling, you know, absolutely fire, you know, push back on that. That, that is something that you, I feel that's a different situation than the example or than I, the situation that was that inspired this, yes, which yes, was yes. there is no rules that allow me to to get advantage here, but yeah. can I? Yeah. Right. Um, and and in that in particular, I don't mind it. Uh, yeah. With the sole exception of if it happens every five minutes. Oh yeah. Oh right. god yeah. Well, and and for me, a lot of it comes down to because for a storyteller or a DM and a player. 
is very similar in my experience to the relation to a good re- a good relationship there is very similar to a good relationship between an actor and a director and yes. these have to be these are these are interactions there there's social constructs and contracts in place and things like that but the fundamental kind of baseline the foundation upon which this relationship is built is one of trust and if everybody's there for the same reason which in most modern D&D and other tabletop settings is telling a story a lot of the community has moved away from that sort of like early uh, late 80s early 90s kind of the the dm is competing against the players you know trying actively to kill them and the players are we don't you don't see that as nearly prevalent of of an incident anymore so the idea that we're all here to tell a really good story and the gm knows far more about the story than anybody else around the table mm-hmm. so yeah, so put out a question and say, hey, as I'm reading this situation you've presented, it feels like I should, you know, have a little bump here, get an advantage or something like that. And if you trust your DM and your DM and you are there for the same reason, then you can sit back and say, all right, I've given them the information. If they say yes, great, I'll, I'll get what I want and we'll move the story along that way. If they say no, they probably have a good reason for that. So I'll roll the dice and get the story along that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing from the DM's side that I would maybe mention is the idea that if you're getting push from a player and they they want to put it out there, you have two choices. Either you stick to your guns and say, here is the ruling. This is not something you can do, so don't pick up your – in a sense, don't pick up the dice and roll it because it doesn't matter. You can't do that. Or you decide, all right, I'm going to let them do it, but they're not going to be able to accomplish it more or less no matter what they roll. <sighs> the first one can feel a little hardline, can feel a little authoritarian. And a lot of DMs want to shy away from that because that's not the sort of uh, vibe they want to bring to the relationship between themselves and their players. Right. The, the, the pitfall is what happens when they roll and they get that natural 20? You know, what happens when they yeah. roll and they get all of those successes? <laughs> Suddenly, it's like, because that, that, that sort of agreement generally exists at the table. If I pick up this die and roll high enough, there's always a possibility I can succeed. I usually tell beginning DMs, if it's imperative that in a certain situation, a character must fail or must succeed at a given event, don't let them roll dice. Just tell them what happens because it had for the story to progress. That has to happen because when you roll dice, that brings in the chance of either success or failure. Only have them roll on things that the story can proceed, whether they fail or not, whether they succeed or not. The other way you can do it is to sort of hybridize the choice between letting them roll, but sort of making it already apparent that they're not going to succeed. Um, you know, for a D20 system, if somebody is in, in <clears throat> just convinced that they need – that they can do what I'm telling them I don't think they should try to do or the story says they can't do, tell them the DC right up front. Tell them what number they have to hit and put it way out of reach. You know? Okay. Yeah, no. You can absolutely roll per- – okay. If you, if you want to, sure. Roll a persuasion roll. You have to get a 40. <laughs> you know, or or if you want to even put it, you know, if if you know your characters and you know their character sheets and that sort of thing, he's got a plus seven modifier. All right, yeah, you have to make a thirty. 
and and you can even put it out there as you can roll a natural twenty, but it's still not going to be a thirty. So well, and, you know. and the, another way around that to make it feel a little bit less like a like a blockade mm-hmm. um, is to make it an opposed roll. Yeah. Especially in D twenty systems, because what, there there there's yep. a tacit agreement that a natural twenty is always on, on a success, but that's only against static numbers. Right. If there's another fa- if there's another force in the world rolling, they don't have to know what it rolled or what modifiers it has. <laughs> um, just yeah, no, roll. Go ahead and roll. Oh yeah, natural twenty. That's great. Doesn't work. Why? Because it's an opposed roll. I guess what? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And so, yeah, so there's, I mean, there, there's ways around it, you know, and if you've, if you, but, you know, when it comes down to it, talk to your DM, talk to your players, make sure everybody knows beforehand, before the game starts, what everybody's here for. Yes. Uh, as, a, as a comedic aside, also a way to unnerve your players, go ahead and roll for it. Sure. Okay. Not 20. Okay. This doesn't work. Why not? Because when Dracula rolls, he has a much higher modifier than you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is true. <laughs> which, now, to be fair, there are, you want to be careful with how you, how, with, that's one of those situations where you want to be careful with tone. Yes. So I'm going to tell a little story here. It, it's a short story, don't worry. Um, but there was a, uh, uh, somebody that, we used to, that I used to play with. Um, and somebody that you used to know? Yes, somebody that I used to know. Um, that uh, uh, ran a few games. And when I say ran a few games, I mean um, uh, most of us did not did not game with him for a long period after after this. Because he had the worst, absolute worst habit of how he how he handled it, which was if it was an impossible task, he'd give you that look that made it clearly the, the case that it's clearly impossible. And then you'd be like, okay, never mind. He'd be like, no, no, go ahead, roll. No, no, go ahead, do it, do it. In this sort of antagonistic way. That, yeah. that, that come at me, bro style of view. Yes. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I, this person is much better now. It's, you know, he. he this was many years ago. He's in his twenties. You know how it is. Um, I'm in, I'm in my twenties. What are you trying to say? So anyway, <laughs> but no. You, so if you're if you're going to set those impossible tests, you. I mean, this all sort of also goes back to to, to what we're talking about. So ultimately, all of this has to deal with the amount of trust you have between a player and the and, and, and between the players and the DM because. If you trust, you know, if you trust that the DM's not just trying to kill you, it's okay if something's impossible because they're not they're not there to inhibit your fun. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, because what you want to avoid is that sort of heavy handedness of you know, no, go ahead, roll for it. Exactly. Okay, I gotta, you fail. Yeah. Before right. they even say, you know, what they what the result was, you know, because then it's like, okay, well, then why the fuck did you have me roll the die in yeah. the first place? And, if and whatever I got, rock, I it doesn't right. matter what you roll. And right. and mm-hmm. and if and if yeah, we're, we're we're getting even further off topic here, but yeah. if 
you make your if your goal is to make sure that everyone has fun and tells a good story in the process, then those moments where impossible roles come up won't seem as much of a dick move. Like if 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 say for instance just before you've done an impossible role, your rogue uh, also had previously managed an impossible shot because they rolled really well and shot an arrow up over the side of a temple, knocking a goblin off of the rope off of a rope that they were hanging on, clanging a temple bell. Like if if they had like if they've had these moments of fun and and funny and and cool and awesome things leading up to this point and they go oh well i'd like to do this oh well uh, this you can't they're a lot more willing to accept that because leading up to this they've already had a lot of fun and no and most people are reasonable and know that you can't just get your way the whole time it's like okay i've had my fun i've done my thing now it's the point where i can't i have to let somebody else do something or something else has to happen yep Um, so so yeah like just if everyone's here to have fun, then we all have fun. And that's a way ways off from uh, Laura's inability to not bargain with people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Are you seeing that we went on a tangent? I'm stunned. Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't I know. Shocked, shocked, shocked to find there's gambling here. <laughs> Officer, I swear. No. Um, so anyways... Uh, they scoff the, the giants that Grog had attempted to talk to scoff at his offer, uh, and so Percy takes aim and blasts the one nearest to the cave just with bad news. Uh, as the shot rings out, Vex fires a pair of arrows at the giant Percy hit, but, but the rock took her uh, from her horse, throwing her aim off slightly. Um, she she had previously been knocked off a horse, and you know she wasn't feeling very well. She rolled really poorly, is what we're saying. Uh, <laughs> uh um. Lyra uses Disintegrate, which is a high-level wizard spell, which is a fun spell, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> it's a real fun spell. And their reaction uh, to, wait, plus 40? Right. <laughs> not, not 4D something, but 40? No, no, no. 40? 40? Four zero. Four yes. zero. Disintegrate's a real fun spell. Um... <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, blast the giant with a disintegration, uh, destroying a large portion of the creature's flesh and lower jaw. Shocked and stunned by what just happened, the giant uses his remaining good arm to grab a massive rock and hurl it towards the person attacking it. And Lyra, who didn't move, uh, takes... <laughs> so, uh, I want to talk a bit about, while we're, while okay. we're here, uh, shockingly in-character reactions. <laughs> <laughs> Because if you, as a ma- magic user who was never really confident in yourself, suddenly just disintegrated half of a giant's body, right. you would be shocked. Yes. Felicia Day was shocked. Yes. Because she didn't know that's what that spell did. <laughs> <laughs> and she had no idea what to do. And so unlike what the normal player thing would be able to do, oh, well, I cast a spell, now I duck back behind cover. She was just like, uh, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to stay there. Right. And pay, ultimately paid the price for it. But I love, 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 love these super in-character reactions that, that, that people can give. Um, and they typically come when the player is just as in whatever mindset as their character is. Like the, the one that I've that I've personally done was uh, in Jack's Vampire game when all of a sudden I'm staring down my uh, clan primogen 
uh, and, you know, with with news about a potentially uh, city-ending devastation coming, and I'm not sure if I've done good or not, or if I'm going to survive this meeting. And and like all of Gabriel's reactions at that point were my reactions at that point. And I love yep. I love when when you get is so involved in a story that you can do that that you can mm-hmm. both that your reactions your characters' reactions are genuine and your reactions are genuine as well. Um, it's it's sometimes it's very difficult to do, but I it and most often it's difficult to do. But I love when it happens. I just want to comment on that. We don't have to go on a tangent, but. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, so Lyra gets hit in the face with a rock uh, at this point because she didn't move, because she was shocked at her own power. Um, and as the stars fade, as the stars in her eyes fade, she sees the injured giant suddenly looming over her with his axe ready to shop. Uh, second one charges forward, swinging wildly at Scanlan and Zara, connects with both, and the axe tearing across them both. Uh, Scanlan retaliates with a lightning bolt to the chest, uh, and sings a little ditty to inspire Zara, who then follows his lead and uses her magic to use mass suggestion to confound the two giants and bring them over to their side, which succeeds. Um, and is another, it's just sort of another example of, you know, grasping at straws and happen to find gold um, with this mass suggestion that stopped the battle and had the giants lead them to the dragon's lair. Um, they, and so after taking a short rest, um, the group lead, the group follow the now not fighting anymore because they're under the mass suggestion spell uh giants into the dragon's cave as they enter it they take a minute to so yeah they they, they 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 take a short rest inside the cave uh and while they take a short rest percy and grog try to talk to the giants and discern the nature and scope of the dragon's power and size the giants can't really tell them much that's useful just tell them that they'll take him to him but that it's certain death as they get deeper into the cavern, they find a huge open area and see a number of huts and shacks that have been smashed to the ground, coated in ice. And as the giants lead them through, they come across large pillars of ice, which, upon deeper inspection, reveal the frozen form of other frost giants encased within them. And while they're doing this, Zara is having a mental conversation with the giants, asking, you know, what happened, what's going on, and, and getting sort of an explanation that this white dragon had come into the frost giant's lair killed a lot of them, froze more solid in ice, and kept these two alive and well for serving it. And basically they, they only had the choice of serve or die. <sighs> uh, just beyond the icy prison of, of the frost giants, Scanlan sees a large monolith of broken bits of wood and snow. And as he points it out, uh, it looks like to be resembling the form of some dragon and is some sort of, you know, point of worship or offering as they stand there lyra uses legend lore and learns a little bit about the dragon which legend lore by the way is a really great spell for uh for uh um what's the what's the term what's the term divination no i mean it is a divination spell but no it's the uh ex- exposition exposition. exposition yes yeah it's, it's, it's a really it, it is it is exposition the spell yeah uh, Legend Lore is a spell that you cast it and utter a name, and you get bit random bits of exposition about that name. Yep. That is literally what the spell does. Incredibly underrated spell. 
Oh, oh yeah. And oh, yeah. yeah, I mean it's 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 perfect for like a story hook drop in. It's perfect, you know, thing things anytime a character has a supernatural ability or just an unusual ability to acquire information, <laughs> that character can be fundamentally foundational to I'm furthering the plot. I'm very sad that no one in our in Grand Terra ever had the ability to cast Legend Lore. Yep. But yeah, that, that, I mean, that may have made your lives better or worse. Yeah, we had a book. Um, you did. <laughs> oh, yes. That was certainly that was certainly a comparable to Legend Lore. <laughs> it, it, it was. Yeah. Sure. You know, and and having characters like that can be frequently helpful in giving a writer just a helpful crutch, in a sense, almost to to further the plot. Because just because you can get information doesn't necessarily mean the information is always accurate. Doesn't mean the information always comes through clearly. <clears throat> doesn't mean the information is overpowering or putting too much knowledge in the hands <laughs> of the characters. Yep. You know? And I mean, like, the the idea of I know just enough about X to be dangerous is totally something that has driven a large number of plots in television and film and, and even on stage and things for, for years. Yep. So yeah, use the shit out of something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, through legend lore, she catches a glimpse of the life of the dragon uh, until it comes to this mountain and claims it as its own, and uh, it and a name comes to her mind. Uh, Rhymefang. Uh, the giants hear the name and nod as if. Uh, and Lyra tells everyone uh, that the group was that uh, a group was sent to find the white dragon a while back, and never came back. The more she thinks about it, the more she feels like. Uh, this is a suicide mission, and they discuss abandoning the contract and heading back. But knowing that Vox Machina will face possible trial, and and Zara came along specifically to get into the guild, uh, as well as Lyra not wanting to get kicked out of the guild, which will happen if she fails, so they all agree that their only real option is to is, is, they have is to track and kill their quarry, which is a really nice little uh, little miniature. This this scene was a really nice little miniature uh, refusal and acceptance of the call in 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 one like. 20 minute span yeah uh for for those of you that are unaware there is the thing called the hero's journey and it's and it's sort of a classic of telling a story about a adventuring hero and it's separated up into stages and two of those stages are the refusal of the call and then the acceptance of the call if and just yeah little sidebar if you're at all interested in writing look pause this podcast go look up the hero's journey buy yourself a copy whatever yeah, this is this is something you need to know if well, you're and, going to uh, understand how, like, how narrative writing works. Uh, I can't remember the author's name, but a hero of a thousand faces. Uh, yeah, is, that's is a, a that's yeah. a really good iteration that, on that it. Yeah, that really delves into it. And uh, the idea is that it, for these two particular parts, the idea is that at Joseph some Campbell. point, Joseph Campbell is a hero of a thousand faces. Yes, um, at some point, the hero is given a call to action, and at first, he refuses it. And then later on, something happens, a tragedy of some kind. If you think Star Wars, uh, Luke's, Luke's given the call, uh, Ben, uh, Ben, actually Star Wars is like a beat for beat hero of a thousand faces, uh, oh, yeah. the, the hero's journey. Yeah. Uh, Luke Skywalker is given the call to action by Obi-Wan Kenobi. He refuses it. 
goes home, finds his home burnt down, comes back to Ben and accepts the call. Uh, and, and this is this, Typically, that happens over the course of several scenes. In this case, they skipped. The, they had that entire little trio of iteration in a twenty-minute conversation, which was really nice. Yes, <laughs> and it it was. This is a suicide mission. Maybe we shouldn't go. Oh, but if we don't go, this, this, and this will happen. Oh, well, then we have to go. <laughs> which is, it's a great way to do it when you know, not just talking about narrative, but talking about D and D again. Um. When that hero's journey is is a really um, really great thing to tell within a D and D setting, um, but if you if you separate those out, you can freak out your DM because you are essentially in your in in that first scene rejecting the story that he's putting for you. Yep, and that can be scary if you're if you're actually running the game. Um, to you, you did that. <laughs> You've done that several times now. Um, <laughs> right. Here's a very nice, clear plot hook guiding you towards the very obvious next act of the story. Cool. Fuck that. Let's go do this thing. <laughs> Fuck that. We're not going into the Mornlands, uh, <laughs> which I think it's adorable that you guys have a choice. Um. Anyways, but. <laughs> Um, I will get on that train and ride it to God knows where. Hey, I have already teleported you guys halfway across the world in one thing. Don't think I won't do it again. But <laughs> Hey, my players ended up in Zendrick that exact way. <laughs> but um, when you do that, you know, even if you have an ultimate plan behind it, and I know that when I'm playing a character like I would say like 70% of my motivations are in terms of, okay, I'm going along, I'm, you know, going along with the storyline and I have no ultimate thought of where this will take my character. So you might do the, the, the rejection moment thinking, okay, clearly something's going to come up. That's going to, you know, that, that, that will set them back on the path. Your DM's not a mind reader, no matter whether his NPCs have telepathy or not. So that can be scary. So for them to do that, you know, sort of cover all of that in a single scene is is, is a really nice moment. Not that you can't do it in multiple scenes, because again, that goes back to the idea of the trust between the the, the DM and the and and the players that they're not just going to say "fuck your storyline." I'm going to go become a farmer. Or whatever the case may be, I'm gonna um, raise crops, right? Um, or in my case, always I'm gonna go be a blacksmith. <laughs> but it's not. It, 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 it was really. It was nice to see them sort of, sort of encapsulate all in one scene, so as not to. Since this is, you know, a D and D game that, that's not just between them, but it's between them, the 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 DM. And the thousands of people that are watching, um, you know, they, the, this show gets speculated on enough as it is. They don't need that sort of thing coming into play, um, yeah. even mid-episode. So, yeah, something I appreciated. Well, uh, so after having this little crisis of faith, uh, they continue on. 
the guard, the giant stop at a thick wall of ice between them and the path up to the dragon. Grog, one back without thinking, runs forward and slams his flaming warhammer into it to create a crack in the wall. As Percy steps forward to examine it, Lyra fires a fireball at the crack, blasting the wall into large chunks which fall onto the two of them as Grog rolls out of the way. Uh, the path now clear, they begin to head up the twisting path of the ice towards their final confrontation with the worm. The climb is frighteningly cold, each step a little worse. A little way up the path, Vex notices the lower half of a frost giant encased in ice. Strangely, the stench of rotting flesh can easily be smelled. Uh, the resistance of the giants is enough to allow the half-eaten body to decay. Uh, they soon come to a second wall, this time with a bit more of a plan than they had the first one. Lyra again firebolts the wall, this time with everyone from a distance. With the wall broken and fractured, they pass over the remains of it and continue winding upwards. As they walk, they discuss ways to try and distance or entice Rhymefang when they get to him. They decide that they can try to use uh, some kind of subterfuge for whatever it will be worth. They work, up, they work their way up the path, and Lyra tries to decide who to cast Stone Skin on. After a long debate, Zara uses their ability to speak to animals to talk to Trinket. He tells her that he will do whatever it takes to protect Vex, even if it means his own death. With the spell cast, Scanlan trots, uh, trots forward, laughing at everyone behind him. Uh, suddenly, the ice below his foot gives way, and he tumbles out of the way of, as a large pit opens, jagged ice spikes jutting. Now, why was Scanlan laughing at everyone? Because I've forgotten this part. I have no idea why he might have been, except considering Scanlan's general relationship and viewpoint of Trinket, it may have had something to do with the bear talk. Either that, or he... Who got stone skin cast on them? It was Trinket. It was Trinket, yeah. It may have just been that, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I honestly don't recall why... Scanlon was laughing. Moving on. About uh, <laughs> the ice below his feet gives away, and he tumbles out of the way as a large pit opens. Jagged ice spikes jutting out from underneath the now broken floor. They move forward and come to a third wall, with a small, with a small section broken out of it. The giants pause, and Vex notices their trepidation. She surmises that the floor is likely weak here as well, and Lyra blows another hole in the wall for them to pass through without issue. Lyra blasts the wall, seeing it tumbling down upon itself, and they climb over the remnants and forge ahead up the path. As they debate trying to put the bomb Percy made into a bag to use to blow up Frymfang's face, they finally reach the top. Zara sneaks forward into a large open chamber atop the winding path. As the rest come up behind her, Rhymefang invites her into his lair from atop a large platform of ice and stone. Scanlan takes a small bag containing a large diamond offering and the grenade that Percy constructed in town. Projecting an, area of, uh, an aura of confidence, or an air of confidence and arrogance, Scanlan emerges, emer- engages the dragon head-on. As he talks, the others notice that there are three people frozen in icy pillars around them. Scanlan shows the large gem, and the dragon almost laughs at him at the offering that he brings for them on behalf of the Slayer's Take. As Ryan Tang snarls... has obviously never played Shadowrun, never deal with the dragon. Yeah, never right. deal with the dragon is number one in Shadowrun. D&D less often, because dragons are different and come in various sizes. Right. Uh, sizes, but in, in, in Shadowrun, never make a deal with the dragon. Never. Ever. Ever. <laughs> Make a deal with the dragon. So, as a, as a, as a GM running Shadowrun, you always wanted to make a deal with the dragon, right? <laughs> of course. Ah, uh, there's dragons making deals just coming out the walls. When we get to Atlantis, you guys will have a lot of fun. Um, because <laughs> Atlantis is run by a dragon, anyways. Um, 
Ryan Fink, as Ryan Fink snarls about the Giants letting the insects through, uh, the gnome performs snaps back. I am called Burt Reynolds, and I take offense to that. I, this is the first time we have. Is this the first time or the second time we have Burt Reynolds as a, as an alias? I think this is the first time that Scanlan has an in character on stream. They've referenced his Burt Reynolds identity previously, but this is the first time I think we actually see him enact it. So this is, and this brings us to another topic of discussion for GMs in a narrative perspective. In a narrative perspective, uh, meta humor. I was referential g- characters. Way to way to read my mind. Um, I mean, that's what I do. Uh, but yeah, how do you guys feel about not only not not only meta humor, but characters who are themselves completely referential characters to the point of being a ripoff of another character? Well, ripoffs are bad. In D anD D, a little less bad. Um, as a narrative tool, it's not like outside of of role playing games. Um, it's it, it's not good. Uh, it, w- once you hit that ripoff stage, for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. it's lazy storytelling. You are not legally, but but for all other intents and purposes, infringing on other people's ideas, it's unoriginal. I would, say, I would say with one exception, parody. Well, yes, parody and satire are two. Uh, parody right. and satire aren't ripoffs. Right. Um, because there is a fine line between a ripoff and parody satire or homages. Yeah, no. I'm, um, I'm, because I'm, you I'm, can argue that... Um, uh, Edgar Wright and Quentin Tarantino as filmmakers have built their careers off ripping off people. Yeah, um, this is this is less this this is less um, this is less less that more uh, Deadpool versus Deathstroke. Yeah, like meta meta awareness, and it is within a D and D game. I think it's a lot of fun. I think that it's something that, that that you can kind of do carte blanche because in a D&D game, there is a lot of bleed through on how much is in character and how much is tabletop or table talk. Mm-hmm. Um, I make, I mean, I make constant jokes during, during D&D games that are not uh, obviously not in character jokes about, this pop culture reference or that pop culture reference because that's what I'm interested in as outside of D and D. Yeah. Um, well, like for instance, um, I used to be part of an Aeon Trinity game, mm-hmm. um, which is one of those pretty awesome games that gets that like literally twelve people in the world know about anymore. It's um, great. Yeah, I don't even no. know what you're talking about. Right, it's an old White Wolf game. Um, but and it's set in the future, like usually about a hundred, hundred and fifty years in the future. <clears throat> and my character that I played in that game was in character a huge fan of early twenty first century pop culture entertainment, mm-hmm. which basically from a player perspective was me giving my character an in-character reason to say all the referential humor things that I like to say around the table, but shifting it to where, you know, yeah, this is earth in the future. This data and information would be available to somebody who knows where to look for it. Who's interested in the era. So it's not technically a ripoff because it's setting appropriate. 
Yeah. So, you know, there are options of how things like that, if you get enjoyment out of that or you want a character who has that sort of affinity, there are great ways that you can interact with your your storyteller and be like, hey, here's a thing I want to be around about my character. And it can it can add a, a layer to the character, to the setting, to the story. Yeah. Right. I- at the same time, I feel like there is all there is always the opportunity, there always the chance of taking that a step too far. Oh God, yes, absolutely. I have played like I I have played with people who make characters who are no deeper than a shallow reference, mm-hmm. um, and in in writing in narrative writing, there is no faster way to age your material than to give it a than to give it a uh, uh, what's the what's the phrase. A, um, a dated a, reference, a, a, a contemporary reference, like yeah. a, like like uh, it, it, for for instance, any show that it, any show that references George W. Bush as the president, you know exactly when that show was made. Right. It's the um, difference between the uh, the the ZAZ parodies, um, the uh, the Zucker Abrams Zucker parodies of like um, uh, airplane. And, uh, and uh, Naked Gun would still have some of those, but it's the difference between those and the Friedberg Seltzer parodies of the last uh, a decade or so, like superhero movie and epic movie, yeah, the X and the um, the 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 Wayans ones of a haunted house and scary movie, where those are buried in dated references. Like you watch, you watch a movie that's come. You watch one of the more recent ones, like the original. It's uh, on Ed House, which is only like four years old. It feels five, six, seven, eight years old. You watch Airport, and yes, it still has. You know, it's very clearly set in the seventies, right? But it's done so in a more universal way that the jokes still work now. Well, and yeah. and, and that's you know, again, I I come back to this a lot, but because he's a good movie maker mel brooks history of the world mm-hmm. part one yes Brooks is perfect <laughs> like history, um, history of the world part one is one of those ideal examples of the way to make referential humor that is still pertinent and funny today mm-hmm. because he said it all in throughout history like back during the time of the romans they were making referential humor humor about modern day and it wasn't like oh wasn't it funny when was it, it, it like instead of having a joke about um uh, why do I keep forgetting people's names today? Richard uh, Pryor, rather than making a joke about Richard Pryor lighting his hair on fire while trying to freebase in his house and running up and down the street, which tells you how old I am. Um, <laughs> I know. Yep. Ra- rather than making a joke about that, they had a character based on Richard Pryor who lit up an entire field while running away from the Romans. Right. Um, like that, 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 that sort of reference is that, that sort of joke is still funny no matter when you watch it. But if you know what he's referencing, it is that much more funny. Yes. Um, and there's nothing wrong. It's worth saying that at its core, there's nothing wrong with making those meta reference jokes that are dated. If that's what you're going for. And if there's a lot, if you if your your entire hook isn't just that, um, Deadpool as we as you mentioned was a great example of a character 
who, and I'm talking about the filmic version right now, yeah. um, makes makes a lot of great uh, uh, pop culture references, makes a lot of jokes about Ryan Reynolds and and okay. and his past superhero problems, interestingly and so enough, on and so forth. Interestingly enough, the Deadpool movie makes a lot of references to pop culture references that were already outdated at the time oh, yeah. the movie came out. Well, that's which that makes it easy way to 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 make it timeless because if yeah. you're referencing something from the '80s in a nostalgia way, like Wham or like Guardians of the Galaxy does, yeah, um, it instantly feels like it's got this timeless feel because right. you know it's not because it's it's it feels like it should be that era of movie but it's obviously not yeah and that right. just that and, that and you're distinction... not making those references to try and ham-fistedly shoehorn in some level of hipness or or you know up-to-date relevance mm-hmm. you're doing it as a callback to something that has already come and gone but that people still recognize as being a significant aspect of a given era a given event a given circumstance yeah yeah, yeah. But it's still okay at the same time to to throw in jokes that, let's be honest, 10, 15 years down the line, most people probably aren't going to get, don't make the suit animated and green. Right. Because yeah. there's, that's going to be, what, Green Lantern is going to be one of those films that's faded into the background and nobody remembers at that point. And, you know, only if you've, you've, you've seen and understand the reference to McAvoy or Stewart, are you going to get the, the, uh, the, the Xavier reference, but that's fine. You can include those references and they can still be funny. Um, it just can't be what you are relying on entirely for your entertainment. Like Deadpool is still an incredibly funny and entertaining film. If you take those things out, because there, there, there's still plenty there. Same thing with like Critical Role. You know, the, there is Critical Stats publishes a weekly thing of the puns and media references. Yeah. That's how common they are. But you don't watch it for those references. At least most people don't. Um, yeah. They're just a little bit extra humor. And that be all that being said, don't make a character named Fred Flintstone and make all of your in like every single aspect of your character a reference to uh that particular cartoon show. Because these, I mean, unless it's like there are games where that does work, but no, in general, don't. And don't make a character named Gris Gowarden. Um <laughs> <laughs> or or however you're going to Spritzed Bo Burden. Yes. Or even even like not even the name. Like he is a drow ranger who's chaotic good and has a panther companion because you can't convince your DM to give you the figurine of wondrous power. And like, but don't worry, this guy's original. He fights with two hand axes. Yes, he fights with two hand axes, not scimitars. <laughs> um <laughs> Although I will say, because he's not played enough, Aragorn, on the other hand, is a character feel free to make because no one does. Really? I have never played with anybody who's made an Aragorn character. I have only ever played with people that make other, uh, that, that make Legolas. <laughs> you, good sir, are a unicorn. 
<laughs> because <laughs> like Legolas, yeah. I've seen everywhere. I've never seen Aragorn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right then. Well, you are unique in many ways, John. <laughs> I I mean, we already knew that. Uh, anyways, I am called Burt Reynolds, and I take offense to that. And uh, then also, it's worth mentioning that I have looked that up. That is not the first time Burt Reynolds was referenced in game. Okay. That's called Scan on Burt Reynolds for the first time in the Strange Bedfellows episode. All yes, right. no, he, the character has been referenced. I'm saying I think this is the first time that Scanlan has, during the game, actually performed actively the Burt Reynolds persona. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. But yeah, no, they have definitely spoken of it <laughs> several times previously. Yep. Uh, so yeah, uh, Ryan Fennel, Ryan, uh, Ryan, Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Fang, <laughs> in this, Ryan this iteration, is played by Ryan Reynolds. Comes oh, off man. Getting closer to Bert before him, he tells this little man that he's not to be hunted, for he is the hunter in this realm. He orders the giants to his side. Zara uses her mental link to the giants to tell the giants to hold fast and stand by their sides. Her will pulsing through them, bolstered by their bolstering their own, they pull their axes and prepare to attack the beast before them. As Scanlan distracts him, Percy moves to the side and takes aim with bad news and blasts a shot of the dragon scales, and the fight begins. Rawr. The dragon screams internal. Oh no, sorry, Percy screams internally, reloads and fires again. I feel like there should have been subtitles at this point going screaming internally. Right. Um, uh, and, and they fight. I'm not, it's a fight. This is a fight episode. Mm-hmm. Um, it really I'm trying, is. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to, is there anything of import that happens during the fight other than people I mean, getting knocked unconscious? There is in terms of narrative. Yeah. Um, I think that it's worth mentioning Zara's the fact that Zara uh, uh, strikes the final blow because um, there might be some stuff to talk about there. In terms of narrative, not so much. It's 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 an awesome fight, um, and I think it's really great use of environment and things like that. Um, but I think some of the most in, some of the most noteworthy stuff is just rural stuff. Yeah. Um the and and you mentioning Zara getting the the killing blow I think is is a helpful lead in to the one thing about this episode that I wanted to to mention cuz I feel like we may have spoken at it about it br- just briefly last episode but have we talked that much about the effective use of in this case a guest character when it comes to uh when it comes to a narrative especially an episodic type narrative uh, we have. Well, I think we did talk about it last. We week. talked about it. We talked about it a fair bit last last time. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely something that 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 can be touched on again. Was, was there something um, in particular you wanted? Well, about? just the the. I, there's a very, at least in my experience, common occurrence in audiences specifically, where guest characters or characters that at least start that way can sometimes very easily become some of the most treasured iconic characters in a franchise, in a narrative. Yeah. Um, And what do you guys think about that phenomena? Do you think that's good, bad, or just a thing that happens? To to give you an idea, um, uh, in MASH, my favorite TV show of all time, I right. don't know if I've mentioned that ever before. Um, no, not at all. 
in 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 Mash, uh, uh, Harry Morgan, uh, Henry Morgan, Harry Harry Morgan, Harry Morgan's character uh, come, is first introduced as a guest. Um, he he first comes in as a crazy general in the episode the general the general uh, flipped at dawn, mm-hmm. um, season four. I don't remember exactly which episode, but it was one of the episodes in season four. I have a really good memory for Mash, by the way. Um, the general for <laughs> the Don, he came in as a completely different character, a General Steele of apparently a notable family of generals, uh, who was batshit crazy. Um, like, to the point where he was going to have the entire camp pack up and move three miles down the road, because the M in Mash stands for mobile. Right. Um, like, that, that kind of, that that kind of, like, rigid army insanity uh represented like he sort of represented this what all all the all the things that are wrong with with certain members of the military's thinking particularly the the more armchair style generals people that look like sort of bureaucracy their way to their position um and that's that's literally who he was like that character was nepotism all the way um and um well because harry morgan did so well with that character he the actor was brought back as a full-time cast member in colonel potter a colonel potter is very different from this general obviously and and you know but the fans reacted so much to him as an actor uh and him as a character and of course he did a lot of other really good stuff around that time as well um that the producers you know said Let's bring this guy back. And out of that, we got some of the best episodes of the series were episodes with Colonel Potter in them. Yeah. Um, and that just as my go-to example of a guest character being such a big phenomenon that it made arguably without Harry Morgan, without Colonel Potter, MASH would not have gone a full 11 seasons. Right. Like, I, mean, I would say that's slightly different because his intro- his guest character was a completely different character than yeah, I mean, his, his it regular. Is, yeah, but, it is slightly different. But the principle but, still Yeah, the principle's still the same. Still holds pretty well. I mean that yeah, that that fits more with the um uh the Peter Capaldi Doctor Who. Right. Where you know, Capaldi had played um actually uh, a couple he, of roles. Uh, uh, but he had played the Pompeii episode. Yeah, the right. Pompeii episode. Fires of um, and then eventually became the Twelfth Doctor, and uh, Peter Moffat ended up tying those two together. Um, but but that that sort of fits in in that way. I think this is something that uh, more often than not, it's it, if you can get a character that is so that that. It's a lot easier to get a character who's a guest star and only has one or two appearances to make a, a, a sudden reaction, particularly in, in genre television or, or genre storytelling, I guess I should say, as a whole. But I, I, I was thinking specifically of television um, because that character comes in, it's there only for a short time. And as we, we, we talked about uh, in the last episode, when you're introducing a character in order to give them an impact, you really have to make them stand out when they first, when they first show up. So it's very easy to create those characters who have very sudden, passionate fan followings. Weird Al Yankovic um, and Gallivant. 
Yeah, that's a that that that's a great example. Well, I mean, like that's um, how we get the character of Spike in. Buffy. Exactly, that's exactly who I was gonna mm-hmm. gonna reference. Is Spike was again originally a character who was I don't even think he was supposed to last, like a couple episodes. Top, a couple I episodes, think, right? Yeah. And he did no no. That wasn't just be that wasn't because of fan reaction because his that character was supposed to be killed off. Basically, by the time he would have been killed off, the sh- the first episode hadn't even aired yet. Yeah, um, it was that James Marsters did such a fantastic job and clearly had such chemistry with Juliet Landau and with with everybody on the show that Joss Whedon was like, "All right, we're keeping you around." And then oh. he was such a big hit for that season that he became one of the more entrenched characters on the show. Yeah. And um, you just reminded me of another character, uh, uh, other characters from MASH again, uh, Klinger. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's another example where he started <laughs> off at, Section 8, yeah. Yeah, well, his his first appearance as a guest was just a random dude with a scarf. Right. That uh, that uh, was being abused, ver- was being verbally abused by uh, uh, by um... Um. Uh, fuck, uh. Frank Burns, um, mm-hmm. and to to the point of wanting to frag out, which and we actually got sort of a not an explanation but a visual representation of what the term frag out meant because he had a frag grenade and he was going to throw it in 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 like he was going to shove it in basically in Burns's pants and let it go, right? Um, uh, and he was talked down from that by Father Mulcahy best priest ever represented in the, in television bar none. Um, uh, and, uh, television, maybe <laughs> bar none. I will fight over that. Anyways. Um, but, uh, but, uh, um, he was talked down from it by father Mulcahy and, and, and his, his sort of, his character emotionally resonated with, apparently with the audience, uh, to the point where they, after a while, they brought him back as a recurring character, another one of those mm-hmm. guest characters that just has something about him. Was he actually not exactly what it was? It was, it was the fact that he was he represented that person that you just get shit on all day, all day, all day, all day by someone who doesn't deserve to shit on you. Yeah, and just snap. I mean, there. Hit, television is littered with these characters, and I mean that in the yeah. best way. Jesse Pinkman was supposed to be a one-time, yeah. one-season character. Uh, Carol on The Walking Dead was yeah. supposed wasn't supposed to go along. Freaking Spock, yeah, was yeah. not supposed to be a long-term character. Lafayette on True Blood. Um, yes, I did just look up a list. I'm, but <laughs> but still, but it still, was blood, the, it was True Blood that gave you away. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I was a hardcore True Blood watcher. Um, which the less said about that, the way that show ended, the better. <laughs> but um, but those those are all really good examples. Um, uh, one that is actually not on a list, but 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 I for people of an entirely different form of TV watching, Santana on Glee was a very minor character in the first season. And it wasn't until audiences really reacted to both her, uh, the, 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 the performance of Naya Rivera, and the, the, um, 
really mostly hinted at at that point, but the relationship between Santana and Brittany that the character really got expanded in the back half of the season. Um, but for all of these good examples, there are plenty of examples that turned out particularly poorly. I know he's an iconic character, but Urkel and Family Matters was supposed to be a side character who basically the show became about, and it sort of ruined the show. Well, um, uh, Felicity, I like Felicity on, on Arrow. Captain Jack Sparrow. Or, or, but, Captain yep, Sparrow. Captain Jack is a great example uh, yeah. when we move to film. Um, the, the, the Minions in, in Despicable Me. The Minions movie is shit. Going, um, back, going back to good guest characters, though, Captain Jack Harkness. Jack Harkness is a character yeah. who, who uh, like, ended up getting his own show. And, um, and who, like John Barrowman, already was fairly popular, but he exploded after oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Jack Harkness. Yep. Like, like that. that's how you do a guest character. Um, also, John Barrowman is just a lovely individual and a, and, a, and a human being that we do not deserve to have on this earth. But and it's true. the best squirrel girl there could possibly be. Yes, he is. Uh, so, <laughs> no disrespect to the actress who's playing her in the upcoming TV show. But it's John Barrowman. Yes. Also, also surprisingly good Nazi. Are you talking producers? Yes. He was the SS, the singing SS officer in the producers. Yep. Uh, yep. With blonde hair and blue eyes, and it took my wife three watching, three viewings to realize it was him. Yep. Um. But yeah, so moving, moving. It was the voice that gave it away for me as soon as yeah, no, no. I was like, oh, there he is. That's, hey, come Jack. Yep. Um, <laughs> let me, moving, moving back to uh, this. Yes, uh, Zara does indeed get the final blow on Rhymefang. Um, she actually kills him with. Uh, she kills him with. She kills her, him with her. Uh, of her all things, her racial, her racial yes. abilities. Her uh, 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 rebuke. Uh, yes, hellish rebuke. Health, hellish rebuke. Yes. Uh, yeah. It. It. I believe it hits her. Yes, he spews forth hail of ice, and Zara responds with hellish rebuke and kills him with it. Yep, which is the I best hellish nice. rebuke. Thus far, the best hellish rebuke I've ever seen used in D anD. d Yeah, probably. Because no one's ever, no one else has ever killed a, a white dragon with it. Nope, <laughs> not that I've seen. It's hard to beat. It didn't that. stop me trying to trying to somehow replicate it every single time with Nerali, but it never happened. No, Nerali just wasn't meant to be a hellish rebuke person. She was too nice. I mean, you get it up, but it'd be like three damage, four damage. It yeah, was, it, was, it was sad and depressing. Well, I mean, you have to get to wait until they're almost dead before you use it. That's the trick. Uh, Being a battle mercy. Yeah, <laughs> to wait until they're down and then pull the on and blam blam. Anyways, uh, so yeah, they end Rhymefang. Um. And during this during this whole kerfluffle, uh, Lyra and Percy were knocked unconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, Scanlan 
uh, runs over to Lyra to revive her with a potion, uh, not but not before turning uh, turning into the in the immediate visage of her lover of her lost lover slash father figure. Her relationship so with Aldor is weird, and I'm I not mean, sure what it is. The relationship between Lyra and Aldor is <laughs> you have a very I mean, different question. Yes, right. you have a okay. very different impression him, of that relationship than he's I He's just like, uh, no thanks. I don't know why, but it's I feel like... a very simple relationship. I feel like she referenced him as like a mentor figure at one point. And I don't um, know if that's just my brain. He's definitely, more, he's definitely portrayed, or at least indicated, tagged as more experienced and a longer veteran yes. of the Slayer's take than Lyra yeah. is. Lyra is a very recent addition. What I'm, what I'm saying is I think Lyra has daddy issues. <laughs> that's, that's all I'm saying. Um, you'd have to you'd have to call Fel- Felicia Day on that because I wasn't able to get in touch with her over the past two weeks. What, what were you doing? Today. Come on. You were supposed to be – that's what you were supposed to be doing, Jack. What's well, wrong with that's, you? That's what I was doing. I tweeted her like 12 times and just <laughs> nobody ever got back to me. You should have gone. You obviously should have gone down to Burbank and gotten her attention, like with you know, a with I have potentially to do that sort of thing. I am going to be doing I, that sort of thing potentially with like a cardboard sign with like the letters cut out from magazines. I think that's probably a very effective. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like that is the that is the socially expected venue for yeah, that I think sort that, of communication. I believe yeah, that is right. exactly how you should do it. And just look under the door, preferably with a with a with a couple of like. Uh, Nail clippings from their bathroom. Yeah, Nail just just something like the that. socially yeah, and legally well, acceptable way to do it. Right. Clearly, yeah, that's, that's that's generally how those things go. You know, when you when slip you, it you under the door, the attention of a celebrity, steal some of their personal effects, hopefully personal remains, and yeah, slip it under the door. <laughs> <Hashtag> gamer law. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for bringing that full circle. All right. Uh so. Yeah, uh, Scanlan turns into Aldor and revives her, and they start making out. Yep. Yeah, that's a thing because that Scanlan. Because Scanlan apparently, yeah. Add another, add another mark to the problematic Scanlan action thing. Yep. Um, we could go into a tangent about body swapping and things, but I feel like they go off into tangents about body swapping enough in the show that we don't need to. Because <laughs> they're always like, like, that is something that they have talked about repeatedly is when are we doing a body swap episode? Yep. <laughs> well, that's because so. body swap episodes are one of those things that are what? generally fun for the audience, but they're even more fun Jack, for the actors. Jack, Jack, tell us what a body swap episode is. All right, so the body swap episode is when some weird shenanigans happen, and everybody's brains or personalities or whatever, whatever that interior thing that makes you you that's not there when you're a corpse, ends up in somebody else's body. And usually hilarity ensues. Particularly on a performer's side, because suddenly you've got carte blanche to parody that person you've been acting alongside right. for so long. Um, the Stargate one, it happens like two or three times in Stargate, and those are always hilarious to me. Um, Especially yeah, because um, – oh, I can't – what's his name? It happened like twice in Buffy, once the, in the, the Angel. Oh, why right. – Christopher Judge? Teal's character? Teal's no, actor? no. Um, 
Richard Dean Anderson? Yes, Richard Dean Anderson is a joy to watch when he's acting. Yes. Mm-hmm. Especially when he's acting like other actors. <laughs> because he gets it, he nails them. Whoever it is, he will nail his impersonation of them in his body. Right. Oh, I have to say. Oh, sorry, go it's ahead. The, it's the Freaky Friday trope, basically, yeah. Yeah. if anybody yeah. still isn't caught up to what we're talking about. But yeah. I have to say my all-time favorite body swapping episode is still Lost Girl. The Lost Girl body swap episode oh, is amazing. Oh, yeah, that one is very um, good. Now, you generally fucking Ksenia Solo, who I will say it again, is an absolute Canadian treasure. Oh, God, um, yes. Playing, so um, uh, playing, I can't think of the the, act, the the character's name, but the wolf guy. Right. Was mm-hmm. so good. And then him playing her in yes. response. <laughs> yeah. Oh my, yeah, no. And the thing with the body swap episode is you never lead with it. Right. It's never going to have the impact unless the audience already has investment in the existing characters and has figured out their idiosyncrasies and their habits and things like that. You have to be familiar with the characters already before you can pull off. Because they they have to be able to pick up on those idiosyncrasies when another person is doing them. Right. It's so also that, something that talking about, you know, in, in context of a D&D game, it is worth mentioning know your players and whether they're going to be good with that. Yeah. Um, because, again, it goes back to what we did trust and, and et cetera. And mm-hmm. you are creating a care a situation where your your players are going to inherently be making fun of each other. And you're in a good-natured control. way without, you know, eh, ideally they're going to be doing so in a good-natured way that doesn't, you know, is mocking the character, not the person. Right. Um, well, not, not even necessarily mocking. Like, like mocking, mocking, implies a, mocking implies a particular level of viciousness to it, and I don't think that's necessarily what's happening. No, parodying, spoofing, having fun with. Yeah. Um, yeah. And... W- when in a Dungeons and Dragons game, that line between uh, performer and character is a lot blurrier, I think, than than in a because you are you are also sort of your character's writer and your character's you know your character's your writer, character's your character's owner, performer, yes, yeah. Um, so there's, you know, writers are always tend to be very invested in their characters. And so it can go bad if there is, if, if the group doesn't particularly have that level of being okay with an understanding that, you know, it's not, it's, it's not personal. It's having fun, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So know your group and whether they can do it before you do it. Yeah. Yeah. And of course it generally gets easier if you've got, again, a long-standing interactions between these characters and you're playing in a group where everybody values each other and gets along mm-hmm. because, because then the, the level of responsibility and the trust is built there to where, you know, it's, it's that sort of, <clears throat> sort of old uh, old adage of trust your friends because you know who they are don't define your friends but what by what they happened to say to you in the last 24 hours you know right yeah you know right 
John and I tell each other to fuck off all the time, whereas yeah. if a stranger in the sh- came up to me and yelled at me to fuck off, I would assume they were angry and a fight might be about to break out. When John does it, it's like, yeah, no, we know who each other are. So this is something where that, that level of trust has been built to where that sort of thing can happen with no negative repercussions. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I also threatened to make out with Jack every other day, too. Well, yeah, you know. That's I'm also okay true. <laughs> Everyone's okay with that. Um, <laughs> it's not like our characters aren't getting shipped in StarCraft. <laughs> no. <laughs> I never thought the first time... I'm sorry. I never thought the first time a character of mine would be shipped would be in a StarCraft RPG game. <laughs> I mean, why not? I just never thought of that. <laughs> I figured it would be a, a show I'm in or something, not that. Actually, no, this... Technically not the first time a character of mine has been shipped, but that was Romeo and Julia, and it was weird. So we'll talk about that later. Anyways, <laughs> um, the uh, after killing the dragon, the uh, group discover uh, group looks around and, and sort of loots the bodies of the people that the dragon has previously killed, finding a lot of dragon slaying equipment, uh, determining that it was indeed this was indeed a previous party sent up to kill the dragon. Uh, I don't remember. Does the does the frost giant village melt, or do they just leave them all dead? Uh, well, it's only two frost giants. If two frost giants makes a village, um, I mean the the other frozen frost giants. Oh. Uh, no, I think I'm pretty sure there. they just leave them there uh, because I think uh, Grog tries to loot all the giants that he can find and finds out. Surprise! Giants actually usually don't carry a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh-uh. Um, but yeah, they loot the bodies and head home. Uh, having all they needed, they make they make the almost two day trek back to town. They quickly make their way back to the guild hall. And when they walk through the door, Martin is shocked to see them alive. Martin being the wife of the huntmaster, he quickly goes husband. to get his sorry husband. I mean, he is her wife. We we yeah, it, technically that yeah. There's, there's, there's uh, she she that. is she is the dom in that situation. Um. Anyways, what are, uh, what are you saying about wives? Wives can't be doms. Nothing. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, please do do feel free to expand. Do as continue we... to dig this hole, sir. <laughs> no. Anyway, he quickly goes to get his wife, the huntmaster. <laughs> she comes in, clapping slowly, very proud of herself for the job well done by those she is employed to do this. Lyra bursts into happy tears, falling over herself uh, to gain praised affection for that of the take. The item is provided, and the contract is fulfilled. And this half of Vox Machina takes their payment for a job and eagerly await the return of the other half of the group. And that's the end of this episode. Yeah. Yup. So, yeah. uh, Good solid fun. (laughs) Right? Introduction to characters that we will see again down the line, because Mm -hmm. if you have good guest characters, goddamn better make them recurring guest characters. At least one of them. Yeah. I don't know if we ever. I mean, I don't. We have not directly. We. Ah, fuck it. The spoilers. Uh, mm-hmm. We do not. We do not directly see Lyra in, like how you went, as played by Felicia Day. I like how you got halfway through the same sentence I was about to do, and then had the same mental dilemma I did. Yeah, <laughs> we do not see Felicia Day playing Lyra again. I believe we see Lyra in a quick aside as played by Matt. And it's not to say we will never see Lyra. Again. Right. I hope we do point, because I think Lyra's freaking great. Oh, yeah. Lyra, Lyra is your character. 
No, no, Lyra is so not my character. Of the of the of the characters in this particular episode, Lyra is definitely a character up your alley. Not I not mean, the, yes. not a character you'd play, but your character. Like cut from a similar cloth. Yeah, no, that's her. She's definitely more of a Nerali than played. a. Yeah, she's yeah. like half Nerali, half Lux. Yeah, that is my. The gears in my brain have locked. Um, Stop writing fan fiction about your own character. No, no. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine <laughs> a character that is half Lux and half half Durali. And scarily, I think you're right. Yep. yep. <laughs> we know you. Uh, <laughs> that is, that Lyra fits that. Uh, yeah, no, it was a good overall good episode. I I, I definitely enjoyed. Breaking up of the norm, the uh, like sort of different characters in spot, sort of giving, also giving a little bit more flesh to the world around it, and uh, which is a terrifying thought when you extrapolate that out of context. Um, <laughs> and now my brain's doing that. So we have been financial films. We produce a wide variety of content every day of the week. You can check out our website at foundationfilms.com. You can also check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash fsfilms. Thank you to our Patreons, especially our $20 supporters, Chris Comfort, Atonic, and Cat Waterflame. Without him, we wouldn't be able to do quite as much of the stuff that we do already. Uh, you can support us on Patreon if you like. You can also find all of our stuff on our website at foundationfilms.com and on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Look forward to today, if I get this out on time, uh, you're not going to be listening to this after the fact, but if you if you happen to catch it, I hope you enjoyed watching us do a character chance session with the folks over at Dawn Forge Cast, and keep an eye out for uh, later this month. We're going to be doing a Vampire the Masquerade one shot uh, crossover with the Dawn Forge Cast folks. Um, Jackson be running that, and I'm going to be being a crazy person in it. It's going to be fun. Yep. Um. Uh. So look forward to that. Um. And yeah, thank you all very much for supporting us. And thank you to the folks over at Jack, stop breathing in your mic. Uh, 411mania.com. Jeremy, tell us a little bit about 411mania.com. Ah, it's a place. Um, no. <laughs> 411mania.com <laughs> 411mania. is a pop culture site that everything that you might be interested in. If you're looking for the news as it comes out of San Diego Comic Con next week. Um, we will have all that as it is hitting. Um, we will, we, all of the, the latest wrestling news, the TV, movies, comics, MMA, uh, video games, music, uh, the final show film stuff. Um, basically everything that geeks could be interested in, we cover. So, uh, it's 411 Mania, check us out. Yep, uh, we appreciate the folks over for com. Check them out, and we appreciate all of you for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>